Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're actually joined by Evan Schmidt. She is a writer and improviser and our resident Buffy expert. I believe, Evan, you actually studied Buffy in college and wrote a thesis on it. I did, and it was called Buffy Tyler Moore. You're going to stake it after all. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very proud of that paper. I talk about it all the time, and I graduated in 2009, so you know where my life is going. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And you don't really use Twitter, but uh, if you guys want to find Evan online, she is at girl underscore Evan on Instagram. That's right. And the reason why we are having a Buffy expert on today is because our topic today is about conveying information and meaning through visuals and imagery. Uh, In other words, anything beyond just dialogue and how to do that on the page. And to do that, we'll be using two of the best episodes of TV ever, which are Buffy the Vampire Slayer's Hush and Restless, both written and directed by Joss Whedon. Yeah, I'm excited. But before we begin, there's something else I'm very excited about. As we mentioned last time, we have a panel at WonderCom. We're going to be doing a live episode of Paper Team for the very first time. And it's this coming Sunday, April 2nd at 4 p.m. in room 209 at the Anaheim Convention Center. So our panel, uh, we might not have mentioned last time, it's called Writer vs. Fandom. And what we're doing is exploring how writers and writers' rooms interact with their fans. So we have some people who work on DC's Legends of Tomorrow, Lucifer, The Tick, The Shannara Chronicles, and more. So please join us for that. But now, on to our episode. All right, so first up, uh, let's talk about visual storytelling. What does that entail, Nick? So visual storytelling essentially means using action, reaction, imagery, all that kind of thing to tell a story and communicate ideas and information, as opposed to, say, dialogue and, and clunky exposition. Show, don't tell, as we always like to say. As we both know, Nick. <laughs> my favorite show. show, don't tell, is uh, my, my favorite object in school. <laughs> <laughs> like you do it in the morning, you show and tell? In the mirror, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so TV has traditionally been a very talky medium because it evolved from radio plays. So soap operas back in the day were actually designed to be listened to while doing housework. Yes, it's kind of sexist, but that's how they designed it. You know, not needing to see the TV to understand the story. Whereas film began in silent movies with no dialogue at all. So the visuals were really king. Now, film and TV have slowly come to meet in the middle over time, especially now with the dawn of a lot of prestige filmmakers coming over to TV, big budgets allowing for more cinematic feel. So visual storytelling for TV is now more important than ever. I think the reason why Joss Whedon initially wanted to do a Hush and even Restless was because he was tired of TV actually being described as radio with faces to your systems. And I think he felt kind of like a hack. Uh, that was the description that he used himself in the, in the various commentaries for the episodes. And so that is why he wanted to do both of those episodes that are very visual and and much less reliant on, on traditional dialogue and exposition. And in fact, Josh Whedon has always wanted to, for Buffy to be a very visual show. And there were a couple of times where Fox executives actually have given him notes because they, they thought there were too much visuals in, in the script that he was given for Buffy in the prose. And that, that is exactly why he wanted to do both of those episodes on a more visual front rather than dialogue. Evan, do you want to talk us through how both of those episodes fit within the fourth season and Buffy in general? Yeah, so the fourth season of Buffy is a very polarizing season <laughs> because it takes place right after one of the greatest seasons of TV of all time, season three of Buffy. You know, you just had the Ascension, and I'm not going to apologize for spoiling anything. Oh, please don't. Please shame don't, on you yeah. if you haven't seen it. It's been 20 years, guys. You've had your time. You've had time. <laughs> 
so, you know, season three ends with the Ascension and our Scooby gang graduating from high school. And now they're on to college in season four. So there is a lot of change. The school itself, the high school, has blown up. It no longer exists. And now they're going on to, you know, Sunnydale Community College. And so Buffy, as a show, so well juxtaposes the, you know, monster of the week with the struggles that kids of that age would actually face. So you have the battle of going to college and trying to figure out who you are as a young adult while literally and figuratively your past has exploded and blown up and is, is no longer right. there anymore. So season four is a big transitional season because you have completely new cast of characters. So Hush comes in season four, episode 10. And so already in season four, you have seen the characters struggling to regain some sense of identity and finding a new identity after their high school years have come to an end. And so everyone's kind of lost. They are lost within themselves and they're lost in their group because the dynamics have changed. I, I think that's why like the fourth season was so polarizing is because for the longest time, Buffy was this idea that high school was hell, right? Like yes. both figuratively and literally. And then when you blow up the high school and you move on to a completely different world and a completely different dynamic in college, then it switches from it being just, you know, high school as hell to life as hell and college as hell. So, and I think a lot of people felt kind of alienated and lost in that in that sense of, it's, as you said, a different group of characters, a different world. And so... New problems, new dynamics. You know, you have Buffy now as a young adult instead of a high school kid. And when I was watching the season for the first time... I was nowhere near college age. And so just naturally, I kind of fear change. And it's like, no, no, <laughs> no. Season three, best season. All of the ass gets kicked. It's like now season four, I don't know how to relate to you now. Right. So, I mean, now that I'm older, I, I look f more fondly on season four as sort of like, oh, they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> Like, all oh, the poor babies, all oh, my Scoobies, like, oh, you'll figure it out. Oh, it only gets worse. Like, <laughs> like, Just like life. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, you know, Hush comes in at a point where the characters are at a crossroads. And so it makes sense to have it be an incredibly visual episode because, like when they say with musicals, you know, you start singing when speaking isn't enough anymore. Mm -hmm. And they do the complete opposite in Hush is like, well, speaking's not enough anymore, so we're just not going to. <laughs> yeah, and it, I think uh, you nailed the point about, like, th this idea that it's like they're all this crossroad of where they are in life and they all misunderstand each other and through a uh, hush they end up having to act on who they are as people and then kind of like the whole like riley and, and buffy which we'll get into mm -hmm. later on but this whole idea that you know the the facade that they've been sort of creating between each other is now fallen and that's i think that that's the arc of the fourth season in a way and i completely agree that when i watched it originally i, I could not really relate to these people in the same level that uh, as they were in high school and the fourth season it was really more about life and who you are in in relation to other people as an adult and what makes buffy buffy the slayer so different than any other slayer is because she has other people that's like the point of the fourth season is she can unite with all these people 
and transcend just her unity, but actually have, you know, Giles, Cassander, and, and, uh, and Willow, and together they're stronger than just the, the part, basically. Right, and that's where Restless comes in, because Buffy has been taught throughout all the different people, you know, bad guys, watchers, faith, that being a slayer is a very solitary life and she can't have a relationship because of that her friends and family are always in danger but ultimately it's because she has that group and that sense of community with the scoobies and with joyce and with angel and spike it's like all they all reluctantly have to work together and restless deals with the notion of Buffy finally embracing the fact of, no, I need my friends. The first Slayer is saying that, you know, no friends, no nothing, you go about this alone, and she literally wrestles with the first Slayer right, right. and that notion in the episode. And which, ultimate, which just yeah. for our listeners who haven't seen the episode, is all about dreams. Shame on you. Oh. <laughs> shame on you. <laughs> if you haven't watched the episode, shame on you, but it's about, no uh, it's about dreams. <laughs> There's definitely an element of like tradition and expectation, you know, expectations that are put on someone going back to how that relates to people around that age as well. Like, you know, maybe your your parents expect something from you going forth in life and then you're going to finally break from that tradition and do something different. And I think that's that's funny that you said that, Nick, because I think the fourth season is a lot about expectations versus the setup of the third season, which was as Evan brought. I mean, in my mind, season three is probably the best season of Buffy. And then you had the season that completely upended structurally and narratively every everything about the characters. And then you end the season you actually end the season not on the big bad fight, which is actually the second to last episode. That's when they defeat Adam. That's when they unite and, and whatever. And then you have the real finale of the episode is Restless, which is very different from any other finales where, you know, usually that's where the big fight happens. That's where you defeat the big bad, but they defeated the big bad in the 21st episode. And the 22nd episode, i.e. the last one, is these dreams and all this basically episode that's a coda to the season. You know, it's a piece more about the characters and where they are in their in their lives and i think and that's why with, with consequences too absolutely yeah with like the slate the first layer uh, visiting their dreams and actually all levels and i think that's why so many people enjoy that episode is because it's so different from everything else before it which is ironic because i think a lot of people also did not like the fourth season because it was actually so different from all the other seasons before it and one thing to note before we go uh, deeper into the structure and whatever is that Joss Whedon has been in the open about the fact that he loves dreams and writing about dreams. You have one at the beginning of Hush. You obviously have most of Restless's a series of dreams. And that's specifically because, as he puts it, uh, dreams have their own logic. It's this idea that dreams have a point in the story because you created them purposefully, including the cheese man who actually has no meaning, but that was purposefully done so. And so that offers the writer and the audience on some level an opportunity to explore themes, character, and story in more covert ways than just the plot of the of the narrative or the plot of the arc of the season, while still maintaining that kind of meaning that transcends just the dialogue, which brings us to our next point. All right, nerds, let's get back to writing. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so speaking about sort of structure and also like scale, like comparing these two episodes, it seems like one is much more of a really a micro, almost episodic focused thing that you can enjoy as a standalone. And one is very heavily referential, very heavily foreshadowing of what's to come as well. And you really need that, that in-depth kind of knowledge of the series and all of the characters and everything to fully enjoy it, which I didn't have. I am, I am a casual Buffy enthusiast compared to you guys. 
So uh, a lot of that stuff I kind of missed and I had to go look up and really understand. Wh- which episode on. is which, just so we... Oh, sorry. Hush is the more self-contained one. Restless is the one that really requires that in-depth knowledge to fully enjoy. I mean, when, when you watched a Restless, Nick, since you weren't as familiar as, as Evan and I are about the characters and the world and, and the minutiae of that universe, how did you feel? Was it an I mean, entertaining There was hour something TV? funny about it because it is also it almost seemingly random because it's a dream and weird stuff is happening. I didn't know what was intended to be meaningless random dream stuff and what really had meaning and I just didn't understand that meaning so I think that there's something kind of funny about the way that comes across as well because any of those references can just disguise themselves as oh this is a funny dream thing if you don't fully understand it so it's not like what's this why did they say that it's like oh it's a dream you can just write that off if if it was a little thing you didn't get for sure and I think the the point of restless and that is actually stated in the episode itself is that it's more about the journey than the reveal than the point and hush is definitely that idea of a more self-contained episode with the villain of the week and you gotta you know defeat that villain by the end of the episode and although Restless has the skeleton of that you know it's this idea that the the first layer is entering your dream and you gotta defeat it it is kind of subverted in, in many ways as as you brought up Nick where it's like you don't really have a form of a narrative as much as you're, you're kind of like watching these people's dreams and it's like if someone else explains to you their dream, they seem really passionate about it, but you probably don't really care about it. Yeah. Uh, it's like, I, okay, dude. Like, <laughs> you sell ice cream. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, that is true. And and here you do have this idea that if you don't really care about the characters and you don't really care about the world and the idea that it everything is actually done on purpose everything has except for the cheese man everything <laughs> is purposefully there uh, either as a foreshadowing uh, element or a callback of some kind then you may not be entertained as an audience member i absolutely thought the cheese man had some sort of meaning that i just hadn't seen in the show i was like who is this guy was he like a villain like <laughs> <laughs> but i think that was the it was another reaction intended i feel like that is exactly what like joss and the writers wanted was this idea that oh i don't i don't quite get most of this but the cheese man must mean something <laughs> yeah because it's yeah, so forward in it they all dreamed about the cheese man and it's like <laughs> what does it mean a double rainbow <laughs> Uh, just, uh, you know, he, he wears the cheese. The cheese is <laughs> That's it. Um, yeah, and also like looking at both of those episodes, Hush and and, uh, and Restless, like on the structural level, they're both interesting to look at just because Hush, if we start with Hush first, Hush is the closest one of the two that starts off as a traditional episode of Buffy. You know, you have the first act that's entirely the run-of-the-mill Let's go through the motion of setting up this this villain and what have you. And then it takes, what, like 14 minutes until the silence kicks in. And I think, Evan, you were saying earlier before we recorded that the, the first half, or like at least that act, seems almost not a parody, but like definitely kind of a... It's a little uh, schlocky. Yeah. It's a little, you know, okay, we're going to class, and oh boy, this is going to be on the final, and let's flirt with each other. Okay, now I'm going to go to my after-school activities. <laughs> okay, bye, guys. Like, And then suddenly it does a complete 180 and you're you're like oh okay that's this the premise is like completely different than what is like hinted at before yeah yeah it's like oh maybe when you're in it and you're watching it the first time it kind of hits you over the head but you know if you think about it it's like oh they knew what they were doing the whole time they wanted it to be like this. They wanted to lure us into this place of, of complacency, and we're just settling in for another basic monster w- of the week. WB New Tuesday <laughs> uh, at uh, 7 o'clock. <laughs> and then suddenly, you know, you, you are hit over the head with some of the, the best storytelling and visual storytelling that I think has been on TV. And, you know, even though Buffy was a completely like, 
it got glossed over. I think it was nominated for best hair once yeah, on an uh, award well, show. <laughs> uh, well, the famous episode, infamous episode of Your Bad was yeah. nominated for an Emmy for a best makeup, I believe. Yeah. So yeah. definitely the least. <laughs> I, think, I think it won like an MTV award for like best hair uh, or something like that. They didn't even get best kiss. Like, come yeah. On. I but, mean, uh, Hush yeah. was the, I believe Hush is the only episode in the history of Buffy and Angel for that matter to be nominated for a best writing Emmy. Yes. Yes. And it, it did not even win. And I think that's like crazy to best, think about. Yeah. Best uh, writing was a show that most of it didn't have dialogue. So yeah. that's, I think that's where our story begins here. Yeah. Uh, and just to go uh, to Restless for a, a, a quick second, like the, the, if we're talking about the structure of Hush as, you know, this more classic format, Restless circumvents that a lot. It's kind of like that episode of Breaking Bad, um, Ozymandias, I believe, where it took. 30 minutes for the opening credits here. It's like the opposite where Restless starts with the opening credits. And that's because contractually they had to put the guest names after the credits and they did not want it to visually interfere with the dreams. So they really wanted to have that teaser that starts off with the opening credits and then you have the guest names and then you have the dreams uh, separate. I was just going to say, there's a lot of characters that reappear in this that hadn't been in the show for a little while, right? They went and got back their old people who had gone off and done other things. and For sure, yeah. And I think that's like part of the, this idea that, you know, if you're going to do a dream episode, then the sky's the limit in, in terms of like who you can bring back. And, you know, obviously the principal Snyder is back. Uh, and I think they also wanted Angel originally, but uh, he was uh, too busy on his spinoff uh, to do that he was too busy with bones right that was no. The- <laughs> oh no 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 he plays the vampire who solves crimes Wait, sure um, by looking at bones yeah <laughs> <laughs> Sure. He, um, he eats off of the bone and then looks at it. Mm, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, <laughs> but back to dreams. Uh, yeah, I mean, every act of the Restless is a different character, and that's in direct relation to the previous episode where each character cast that spell that called in the first Slayer, the primeval Slayer, I believe they're called, mm-hmm. and each are killed in the same manner that they contributed to the spell. So, for example, Willow is the spirit. Xander is the heart. You know, he literally has his heart taken out. Giles is the mind. And then Buffy is more the strength, the hand, the combat. Generally speaking, the writer's room uh, has always been very structured. They, Josh Whedon has been on the record and Gene Espenson and all the writers have been on the record saying how every beat has been, you know, very structured before they even went to draft and outline because they had to know every, you know, minutia of the episode. And here, I think Josh Whedon wanted each beat to, like, be looser and make sure that the images were truer to the energy of each dream rather than just the pure narrative of it and just the what's on what's on the page in terms of the pacing at least in my mind it's it's definitely looser than other episodes so moving on to hush uh, i guess with visual storytelling you're looking at both what is being conveyed and then how it's conveyed and i think that this is uh funnily enough kind of referenced or spoken about with uh, that opening monologue from the teacher and hush and so what she says is quote talking about communication talking about language not the same thing it's about the way a child can recognize and produce phonemes that don't occur in its native language. It's about inspiration. Not the idea, but the moment before the idea, when it's total, when it blossoms in your mind and connects to everything, before the coherent thought that gives it shape, that locks it in and cuts it off from the universal. When you can articulate it, it becomes smaller. It's about thoughts and experiences that we don't have a word for. And you can definitely see how subtle that whole uh, monologue is compared to the theme of the episode, uh, since that first act, as we brought up, is 
very subtle. But what's funny is that Joss Whedon actually discovered what the episode was really about halfway through, I believe, outlining. And this idea that, as Nick brought up, the language connects uh, so strongly to communication and what you're trying to say. And this idea that the language used incorrectly can actually be limiting more so than freeing. An example in the in the same episode where you have the Wicca group, Willow, and that's the first moment where you see Tara, that they, they meet, and the Wicca group is emphasizing this idea of empowerment. We're going to be empowered by all these ideas. And Willow and even Tara go in thinking, oh, we're going to do spells. We're going to literally be empowered, but they mean that figuratively in a very different way than uh, intended. And so I think that's one of the themes that transcends this episode is this idea that when you stop talking, that's when you start communicating. And when you actually phrase what you want to say, then at th that point, you've eliminated any other opportunities of thought or any opportunity of ideas that you may be talking about because it's out in the open. And, you know, looking at Hush as this sort of baseline for visual storytelling, if you want to see how a character truly is what they truly want, put them in situations where all they can do is react. And that is exactly what Hush does. All of the speaking that happens in the beginning of the episode is all very surface level. To go back to the example of Willow and Tara in the Wiccan group, they're not actually talking about what it is that they're there for. They're talking about having a bake sale and a newsletter. We have to get the message out. <laughs> yeah. We have to do this. Like They're talking about all the things that they want to do, not things that they're actually doing. And it, it all almost makes the characters in that group kind of afraid to really talk about what it is that they're all there for. So then when Willow brings up, you know, I thought we maybe we would get into actually doing some spells, they're thinking, you know, don't, oh, come on, don't be a, a stereotype. Like, we're, we're really trying to communicate the real reason that we're here. <laughs> and it's like, no, no, you know, and it's like, yeah, that could be like, you know, posers or whatever. But Tara is such a silent character and yet she speaks more volumes than everyone else because i mean mostly like amber benson's eyes are just these gigantic like disney moon, eyes. these yeah <laughs> these giant disney moon eyes that you're just like oh god but she she is someone with great power and recognizes that in willow so when they finally get to the moment where they do have to connect it's like of course it's unspoken and and is is more powerful than anything that they could have said like they don't even do an incantation or a spell you know they just connect with their energies Phys physically yeah physically yeah. yeah physically they're connecting you know and, and buffy and riley physically connect for the first time in that season so it's having what all of the characters want and and need on that level they are reacting within each other and hush you know they're they have all of these things that they haven't said that they've been keeping inside and the easiest way for them to communicate is actually not to speak but to to, to show right. yeah to show and, and not tell which is what we mentioned in the beginning and then once they finally do receive the ability to talk again then they're quiet then they don't know what to say right it's like when when you take away the most important aspect of who we are in relation to each other which is communication dialogue then what do we have and that's what you brought up it's like action what you do matters more than what you say yeah and from more of an outsider's perspective on this it seems like hush is the kind of thing where you are actually still developing the characters and building up our understanding of them as an audience and who they are particularly in this point of the show whereas you know once we get to restless that's much more you're already f very familiar with who they are and how they've got there and it's more looking perhaps at who they might become 
Right, yeah. It's like this mix of like foreshadowing versus setup. And here, I, th- I do think still like on Hush, there's a level of payoff with what has been built beforehand just in terms of like Riley and Buffy. Because you want, you know, as the audience, you, you know that Buffy's the slayer, obviously, but you also know at that point that Riley is part of the initiative and potentially is the enemy of Buffy. And you've got this kind of like John Woo moment at the end of the, I think the second act where they meet each other in battle and they finally see themselves as who they truly are, which it's all about action. It's not about talk. It's, okay, you're this girl with a stake or a crossbow, and I'm this guy with a big-ass rifle. What am I? Do- what are we doing here? Like, what's happening? Yeah, I mean, like you guys were saying, the thing that I really loved about this episode is that there are sort of three secrets that are being kept from each other on both sides of those secrets. Like you said, Buffy and Riley finally find out that, you know, she's a slayer and he's a member of the initiative. For Willow and Tara, they kind of connect and they meet each other for the first time and discover that they're both witches and they can use magic. There's that scene where they throw the the vending vending machine machine. in front of the door because they hold hands and connect and so that's them connecting as characters and also you know moving further towards their magic thing and then even giles and uh and his partner whose name i've forgotten olivia olivia it's the first time that she realizes that everything that giles was talking about these monsters and demons and darkness is literal it's these are real things like she thought he was just kind of off in his (laughs) librarian (laughs) fantasy world but she's like holy you're actually battling monsters so these kind of secrets come out through not being able to you know speak and say these things to each other it speaks to a way of showcasing characters interactions with each other and expressing their emotions to each other again like riley and buffy the only way they can express to each other without words how they feel is by making out and the only way xander can express to anya how he feels is by bumbling spike in the face you know he's like (laughs) oh my god you killed anya like let me kill you in return even though it's a giant misunderstanding obviously but um, well, because the whole thing, you know, Anya is saying, you don't care about me, this is this, and and Xander is having a hard time articulating how he actually feels. So by reverting to sort of a, a caveman tendency is like... With, without beer this time. Yeah, without beer this time, <laughs> foamy. Um, without doing that, it's, it's, all, it's all reactionary. Everything is reactionary. So he sees Spike. Spike looks like he has killed Anya. His knee jerk is to just go crazy and attack Spike and, you know, punch him in the face repeatedly. Anya sees this and she gets the validation that she needs. He doesn't need to say I care about you. He actually showed her that that he did. And Spike and Anya in these situations, they're also <laughs> one of my, one of the, the 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 best things about this is because those two characters always say exactly what's on their mind and they're pushing each other's buttons, you know. Anya is a is a centuries old demon. Spike from what the Boxer Rebellion. He was a, <laughs> <laughs> a vampire since that point in time. So you know they've been around. They've seen stuff. Nothing phases them. You know when Anya is watching the presentation that Giles is dramatically giving. She's eating popcorn the whole time. This is just another normal day at the office for her. Spike always pushes people's buttons. He always says what's on his mind and and calls out people for their own stuff. So they seem completely nonplussed by it just because they never have anything to to keep in and to hold back you know all the other characters they have things that they're keeping from each other you know buffy and riley are keeping their identities from each other you know willie willie wow okay willow (laughs) is keeping her identity a secret from everyone else which goes into more elaboration during restless but 
she she and, and Tara finally connecting and, and becoming who she is meant to be. So um, her identity as a witch and then also maybe hinting at her sexual identity her, as well. Yeah, yeah. her sexuality yeah. as well, which is something that she definitely wrestled with in season four and ultimately became empowered once she actually... Embraced it. Yeah, embraced that. And uh, beautiful, beautiful story arc. For sure. And I, I mean, that is ultimately, it's this idea that the way Joss Whedon and the writers illustrated who these characters were, were strictly speaking by what they were doing physically in those places, as you brought up, like Anya eating popcorn. It's like all those little visual elements that indicate to the audience like who these people truly are. Yeah, I think what's interesting to me to contrast the episodes again is that when they recover their voices in Hush, they have these things that they need to admit to each other. But when they all wake up in Restless, they have something they need to admit to themselves. At the end of uh, of Hush, I think there's the scene between Riley and Buffy and they're like, okay, we, we need to talk. And they just sit there for like uh, 20 minutes. So uncomfortable, <laughs> so uncomfortable. And I even love that they keep the ambient sound over the credits. So you just, even though you can't see them sitting next to each other, you can still hear them kind of rustling and sitting next like across from each other it's such an amazing line because it sums up literally both sides of the entire episode we need to talk they can't physically talk and they also you know emotionally haven't been able to talk but when they can't they when they can't actually talk and they have these revelations about each other they have to be okay with it Hmm. because they have the gentleman that they have to defeat and you know there's there's a bigger issue at hand it's like okay, maybe it's not so much of a big deal that we haven't been talking about this. It's like, okay, fine, here it is. Let's move on. We will we'll just, we'll, we'll figure it out later. And then at the end, they can't because <laughs> they are not properly equipped to deal with the identities of the other. Yeah, it is funny to me, as you said, that, that we've barely talked about the gentleman so far, and we've already discussed so much about this episode. So it shows just how much it really is about exploring the characters and that kind of thing that, you know, these monsters are just the device that enables them to do that. So let's get a little bit more into the story and talk about how we're using kind of visuals within the story to propel the characters forward. I think uh, when you write an episode that is more than halfway through completely silent, this is a potential issue, right? Like, how do you write? How do I write something that has no dialogue and barely any sound and make it compelling instead of boring my audience for 30 minutes? And Joss Whedon was speaking at length about this idea that one of the biggest issues, both in production and writing this, was creating moments without separating them with dialogue. And you may not be thinking about it consciously, but if you look at, you know, a scene or a beat or what have you, you have these barriers that are obviously physical in terms of like the location and the characters, but also more auditory barriers. The lines that people speak are cues for the actors to do a certain action. If you react to something or if you act on something. If you look at the first groups of scenes in the in the episode once they go silent, uh, specifically the first kind of group scene with the Scooby gang, Joss was talking about how in the commentary for the episode how the pacing was completely off the whole scene happened in like seconds because none of the actors were used to acting without dialogue since they did not have any cues really they kind of all did the things at the same time and instead of letting it play out naturally or organically they consciously kind of did all their actions kind of at the same time and a scene that was meant to last minutes took seconds that was the biggest lesson both on the page and even on the production level was that you needed to wait for the scene to play out organically you need the the visuals to play out you need every beat to feel organic in the moment instead of just 
you know, let's rush through things. And just to take a step back to the actual episode and the structural level, like, I mean, you do still have this story that is built to act breaks. You do still have this important idea that end of act two, I believe, is again that John Woo moment of Buffy and Riley facing off. You have, I think the end of act one is obviously the setup of the gentleman taking the voices. So you have all these built-in moments that despite the fact that everything is silent, you still have a narrative to push forward. So moving a little bit into exposition and like, how do you actually get all this story information and this things that these characters need to know out using only action? We have that really brilliant scene of Giles putting on the slideshow where he's drawn the pictures of the gentleman and tried to explain the situation that they're kind of facing here. And one of the things that really stands out to me from that as a comedy writer is just how well they're still able to communicate humor through only visuals. You know, so you've got this whole element of, um, I was talking to Evan before, and she said it's almost like cl- clowning, that traditional. You know. Yeah, yeah, it's, and I'll be an improv nerd here, and <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's giving your scene partners labels and accepting those labels. And so if we label Giles as you are the teacher, you are the pompous Brit, you're, you know, you you are this, that, and the other thing, everything he does within the scope of that label, he has permission to do so. So because we know these things about his character, when he does the slideshow and he does the music, we buy into it because we see the rest of the Scoobies reacting like, oh, brother, like, here we go again. Because Giles notoriously is a little long-winded and a little dramatic, and he, you know, he takes his glasses off and he cleans them, and it's like, oh, it's, it's the apocalypse again, and they're like, yeah, yeah, what else? <laughs> so it's you, like that classic Italian, um, like you are saying, clowning, like mm-hmm. a pantomime, the Commedia dell'arte. Like he is the, I think there's a character called the professor and yeah. then there's another one called the soldier and all that kind of thing like they take on those archetypes when you only have your uh, actions and labels like you said exactly exactly so with traditional miming and clowning you know it does slow the scene down when you and and with the misunderstandings as well you know when they say how do we kill it and buffy does the gesture of, <laughs> of staking something but there's no context or the she doesn't have the uh the object that she needs it's the uh, traditional clowning when you 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 look at the object and then you look at the audience and you look back at the object and you look and move it and you look back at the audience for validation and be like, I'm moving it. Is that okay? It's funny that you brought that moment up because it's visually incarnated in the moment where uh, towards the end of the episode when Buffy is describing the box to Riley and Riley comes in and is like, yeah, I got you. He busts his rifle and breaks like a incense bowl it's or something. It's like a jar of it's purple a, yeah. or something. It's something completely different <laughs> and than the, the look box. On his face he's like yeah, yeah I did I got it. It, and did she's it. just like oh she's getting choked out and she's like uh, and she like has to do she has to, to mime the box yeah mime she the has box, to mime yeah. the box and then he's like oh okay and uh, in Later. terms of you know that like gesture and self communicating character you have Xander and, and Willow and Willow is saying that you know they're trying to take people's hearts and she's pointing at her chest and then Xander is like making boobs? the boobs like yeah he's like boobs <laughs> so that even then like through that yeah, you get a really good sense of the characters through those misunderstandings and stuff Cla- but, classic uh, Xander yeah mm-hmm. and delving even more into gesture you have obviously these incredible characters of the gentleman you have such an immediate understanding of who they are and what they're all about just through them moving their fingers around and how they crane their heads they don't even walk they float they don't move their mouths so you don't have any of those as tools but even through such limited avenues you know exactly who these people are exactly and it's even scarier because they can't talk and i mean they they are nightmare fuel because you have these humanoid monsters they are men 
They look human. They're wearing suits. They have very stylish pocket squares, <laughs> and uh, and and they're doing what what I refer to as spooky fingers. It's all all the movements are very deliberate. They communicate using only these hand gestures because they their their face is stuck in this this smile so rictus grin yeah and that is even more terrifying than a monster growling and and getting all up in your face it's like we see the audience sees these monsters as human and, and that makes it even more terrifying it's like they're supposed to have this or this gruesome face but they're just they're smiling and that's even more unsettling so so visually speaking, if you can't have a bad guy that embodies all the traditional ideas of a monster, of a bad guy, how do we do this? And it's using that juxtaposition. It's like, let's use something that, you know, that has the elements of things that shouldn't normally be. Let's use a Mr. Burns as a villain. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a really great point. Yeah, visual juxtaposition is such an, a great tool to use uh, for visual storytelling. And you see it all the time in movies and that kind of thing. So keep that in mind when you're writing how you can contrast things that shouldn't be together to give it a new meaning. I would argue that everything about Buffy is interposing something that's horrific with something that's very funny. And that's pretty much half of Buffy. Buffy is either transitioning from something that's a scene of someone getting the heart cut out to Buffy and, and Will doing silly things. You do have those elements even in the framing, the visuals of actions where, for example, you have the scene where Riley and Forrest are stuck in the initiative elevator asking, you know, uh, voice recognition, voice recognition, and Riley fumbles and tries to like put his override code in the machine. And in the background, you see Forrest on the notepad writing, come on, come on. Yeah, he can't, the character, other character can't see it. It's just yeah. for the audience. He's but it's holding hilarious. it up and his face is like, come on, come on. <laughs> they get out of the elevator and, you know, Maggie Walsh is looking at the sign and points to it, says, in emergency, please use stairs. <laughs> yeah, like that's a perfectly executed joke and scene and they didn't say a word. Like, that's yeah. another great example. And you can flip it where it's more dramatic, the scene where Tara walks alone at night with her books trying to escape and then she just like drops her books and in the background while she picks up the books you see the gentleman slowly approaching and she doesn't see them. So you've got this juxtaposition both on the humorous side but also on the more dramatic angle. Very Hitchcock. You know, the audience has more information than the characters do. I think those are elements on top of your dialogue, on top of your prose that you can also not necessarily consciously realize are going to be important to the story but pragmatically are in the production sense. So, for example, uh, music. Music is critical to this episode because you've got 20-30 minutes of complete silence except for the music. The conceit of the show is obviously, or this episode specifically, is that it functions like a silent movie. When Giles showcases his exposition dump presentation slideshow, you have in the background, I think he plays Danse Macabre, I think is the name, and it's one of those music that was played in the silent movie era. So that gives it this sense of importance that is completely different than other moments in the episode. And in terms of character as well, that speaks to him putting this music on. He's like, this is so serious. I'm going to play this really serious classical music and you guys should all pay attention and listen. And then it just turns into this comical scene because he's taking himself too seriously and everyone else doesn't really care. <laughs> yeah, and it's actually a play on pretty much any exposition scene before it where like Joss was the one giving the info dump of, all right, let's uh, chase this monster and this demon is about this thing, this thing and that thing. And all the characters don't really care about it. And they want to know how to kill it. But, you know, ultimately you see Buffy's character, you know, she's still very pithy as always. As she looks at the drawing that that Giles has done of her and you know she gestures to her hips like come on like why did you draw me like that 
Just like a just a triangle with a dress. <laughs> come, on, come on, Buffy, concentrate, concentrate. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, just to go back to the music, I mean, you do have that moment when uh, Riley and Buffy kiss for the first time in the entire show. Christoph Beck is the composer. He created this musical piece that is obviously the Buffy Riley theme. That was the first time that is played in the show, and it is showcased in kind of an iconic way. So bringing all of this back to the page and how you can be kind of implementing these ideas as a writer, you know, we can see through reading these scripts, and I recommend you look at the Hush script. We're going to put a link to it in the show notes. That that you know, Joss Whedon's writing is very sparse, especially in this episode. You don't actually have to write these visuals and this imagery in a really detailed, flowery, prosaic way. Way on the page. The image or the visual you choose should actually just be strong enough to stand on its own, communicated in its most basic form. In fact, overriding your action can detract from the pacing and make it feel bloated, which is a really bad thing to do in such an action-heavy script like Hush. There's actually a lot of white space in the silent sections of this script. A lot of, you know, single-line paragraphs with just one image or idea not packed full of big chunky paragraphs of, of action. So, you know, I feel this way about a lot of screenwriting. You really should just be able to sum up your story in plain, simple English to someone without putting on a show, and it'll still be compelling just by the very nature of the events and how they unfold and intertwine and what that ultimately means. If you have that at its core, you have a good story, and it doesn't need to be overly stylized like, you know, writing a novel might be. Joss Whedon's writing style, if you look at any script by him, and even any Buffy script for that matter, because honestly people want to imitate the Sharner style, they're all very straightforward and to the point. He states the visual or the element, and then that in of itself is the reveal. Because naturally, when you finish the sentence, that is the point of the sentence. To take an example from Restless, which we're going to go into in a moment, you do have that scene at the end of uh, Giles' dream when he gets killed by the primitive, and it just is stated as such. It's, Giles doesn't move as the primitive creeps down behind him, angle the top of his head as she prepares to cut it open. Extreme close on Joss' face as blood begins to wash down his face from out of frame. Cut to Buffy's living room. Joss takes in a gasping breath. His eyes do not open. Act out. And that's basically the only thing you need to convey everything that's visually important in that scene without requiring the minutia of the details of, you know, what does the primitive look like in this very specific moment? Yeah, you don't need to say how, like, gross the blood is and how curved the blade is and whatever. Like, it's just, <laughs> just focus on what's important and keep it pithy. <laughs> All right, so moving along to Restless, I'm not going to have as much to say in this section because I'm not a diehard buffer or whatever you guys call yourselves. <laughs> buffer. <laughs> diehard buffer? Buffer, what? <laughs> Uh, but just broadly speaking, in terms of like the theme of this episode, before you guys delve into the nitty gritty, it seems to me like Restless is really about you know people who are hiding things or not being honest about things within themselves, uh, and it's more about kind of what the characters need, whereas Hush was about what they want. Restless kind of speaks to uh, a lot of internal stuff with the characters and, and about identity, and as such, Restless's visuals are more they tend to be more speaking to a theme and about the character arcs. You definitely won't get the same level of engagement if you don't really get the characters to the level of someone who's seen every episode over and over again. And I think that is perhaps the detriment of the episode on some level. It is somewhat polarizing in the sense that if you, even fans of Buffy actually don't necessarily like this episode because it almost serves no purpose. It's like, okay, we're literally spending an hour in the character's dreams and there's no narrative point, right? Like it's a classic, what they would call a fan service, right? Fan service would be bringing back everybody, every character uh, just for this episode. That's what they tried to do though. Fan service is once more with feeling. Like It is ultimately about identity. I mean, each act is about a different character and you through those people's dreams, you get to know who they are. Let's talk actually about each character and let's start with Willow. 
So we start with Willow's dreams, and she is definitely one of the more anxious and complex characters because she is Buffy's right hand. She's sort of the, you know, she's kind of in the in the control center. You know, she as she uses more magic and becomes more powerful, they rely on her almost more than they do Buffy's strength and ingenuity because you know Willow has that direct tap to the supernatural. So going back to the theme that season four has put out in front of us is that this is a time of transition. This is a time where the characters are in a state of flux and they don't really know who they are. So like we said with Hush, it's what do they need to say to someone else that they can't or they have not been. So Restless is what have they not been saying to themselves. And so Willow, the whole episode, her anxiety dreams of, you know, being in an audience and not being prepared, you know, that actually happened in season one. Yeah. In season one, they do the play and she has always had anxiety. I think there was, yeah, yeah, I think there was always even a Madame Butterfly reference, I think in, Mm -hmm. in previous seasons that she just doesn't feel comfortable being on display. And so her fight with herself of becoming more powerful means that more people will see her. As she's dreaming, she is dealing with magic and ultimately when she begins to abuse magic, you know, she is reluctant to have this power and then she has it and then she wants all of it, you know, she has she has no control over it. And also her sexuality, you know, it's red curtains draping around Tara and Willow for a a good chunk of that dream. Yeah, yeah. I mean Tara is her safe place. You know, she doesn't want to leave that place. Like she feels comfortable, she feels happy and loved in this place. And then, you know, she's being forced to get out of it, you know, and Buffy is there and and Buffy is saving the day. But she asks, you know, why are you still in costume? You know, meaning like, why are you still pretending to be someone that you're not? That's why you have the whole like role playing idea and that dream of, okay, we're going to explore Willow's fear of identifying herself as who she truly is by putting her in a play and pretending to be someone else. I think they they speak about the audience as well. Like, he's like, all right, everyone's going to be out there who you've ever known, including us. Good luck. You know, (laughs) everyone that was like, guys, everyone that Willow has ever known is going to be out there judging her. Like, yeah, and then you have that moment towards the end of the dream where she's in the classroom and she's obviously wearing the, I think it's the clothes that she wore in the very first episode of the show. And I'm pretty sure that's a callback to, there was a note early on in the show where the executives found Willow's clothing uh, not like square enough. She was too like hip for the show. So they really wanted to like nerd her out. And so that's why they had uh, her dressed that way. Yeah, just the gigantic gray wool jumper, (laughs) you know, and the Doc Martens and everything. So it's like visually, we see her anxieties and the things that she has been neglecting within herself, you know, manifest on the screen that ultimately deep down she still feels like she is that mousy girl nerd girl you know doing a book report in class and everyone is judging her it's like we've all had moments like that and i think that unless you you can't properly display this story without using the visuals of that right and and knowing the characters in the history of the show because it's referencing everything that's ever happened up until this point right it's like the this idea of the first season and then you also have obviously like willow and tara and the trust between each other if you're stage fright all these things that automatically brings us to another character that's been there since day one xander his dream is much more about his fear of becoming like his parents and never getting away from kind of his old life yeah he's terrified of becoming his father a theme that's been echoed throughout the fourth season 
Ryan. Xander is, you know, just like the the cards that they had when they when they summoned the first Slayer. You know, he is the heart. He doesn't have any superpowers to speak of, so he feels like he's constantly left behind. I think the the episodes with Xander examining these things about himself are some of the best episodes. Like the Zeppo? The Zeppo, yes. The Zeppo's so good. The Zeppo is saying, you know, that he, he enjoys the silence. It's funny, too, because Buffy and Angel are off fighting this monster, and they're like, God, this was the hardest battle we ever had. Like, I'll never I'll forget this moment. We left it all out there. And, you know, and Xander's, he was the one that really saved the day. And so, and then, you know, you flash forward to the uh, Yellow Crayon speech, which, oh, God. <laughs> the yellow crayon speech you know he saves the day with willow because his superpower is unconditional love but at the same time he is terrified of that because the closer he gets to someone the more likely it is that they will be hurt or that he will let them down and you know in the dream sequences in this episode he always goes back and resets to his parents basement right. and, and you you hear and you see you see the visual storytelling element of the uh, the door shaking and the door the doorknob shaking and his father being on the other side and of that. There's also this loss of space of this idea that you know wherever he goes, whether it's like through the back of this ice cream truck, he ends up in this really tiny Byzantine space, and then he finally gets through it and he's back where he started with the basement. It's the same thing with this like amazing Steadicam shot of him going through all the different sets, yeah. and that was an idea that was born because just. Sweden, he realized, oh, all the sets are in the same lot, and you can just literally go through one door and just enter this completely different set. They literally had him snake around the lot or uh, of the different sets to achieve that effect. I know, like, Josh Whedon loves his one shot. His whole dream sequence is very fourth wall breaking in a subtle way, too, because as he's crawling through the ice cream truck, you see, like, the for starters, the rear projection of the thing going on behind yeah. him looks so deliberately fake. Absolutely. Uh, and then also, as he comes through at the end of that, you actually see the angle as such that it just becomes a blue screen again, and you see some of the stage outside of it i noticed like it wasn't a production oh, really? mis- yeah I, didn't I, even- <laughs> I don't think that was a production mistake i think he's just like this is you know <laughs> we're literally moving yeah. to it <laughs> It's funny because the, the rear screen projection, I believe, originally was meant to be the old school, you know, projecting on a screen. And but they had to uh, do it on green screen. This idea that even though you're pretending to be moving, you're completely static, actually. Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. And like all of the scenes that he has in his dream sequence, he's usually on the outside looking in. You know, when he is in the ice cream truck, he is watching himself talk to Buffy in the sandbox. And... That speaks volumes that, you know, you could have that scene and just look at it as dialogue and it's fine, but you purposely put him, you know, on the outside looking in, like, that says more to his character and the fact that subconsciously he would think that Giles even cares more about Spike than he right, does him. Yeah. And like you said, with that moving but staying in one place, the Apocalypse Now reference, and you know, mm-hmm. him just sitting there walking on the screen, not moving anywhere. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's literally like a shot-by-shot recreation of that of that scene. To speak to that idea of it's about the journey, not the, not the destination, which this episode is really about. If you don't really get that the point is that there's no point, it's kind of just living in the moment of these characters, then you may not appreciate it for what it is. Yeah, this is not a talky-talky episode. This <laughs> relies completely on visuals and an audience understanding of the characters in the show thus far. I'm really curious about the Giles dream because I obviously didn't pick up a lot. Like, why is he singing? What's all this? Because like, he's a good singer. A good, I mean, I know, <laughs> I know that. But. They love the actor. They finally spend the season. He, he, had a band, he had a band with Ethan Rain. I think. Weren't they in a band together? Yeah, there's definitely a shot of him like with his guitar in like an so early episode. During, okay, so during band candy, 
Because <laughs> oh, yeah. he regresses through his Ripper. younger self. In he that. becomes Ripper, yeah. which was his nickname. You know, he was kind of this roguish, devil may care, you know, completely like com- the complete opposite of the buttoned up tweed watcher librarian. He had this life prior to being a watcher. And and that's that's also something that's just occurring to me now that it's, that's a very parental thing is that a lot of times kids forget that their parents had lives before right. they had kids and you know the relationship between Buffy and Giles is very parental. Her dad has been out of the picture. Yeah. Giles is forever. always in the same frame as like her mom and stuff when they're in the house and everything. So he's almost like the father of the group. His role is this father figure. Yeah. And earlier in that season, he's attacked by Maggie Walsh, the the professor for. Uh, oh, Buffy never had a male father figure. He takes umbrage to that, and that's reflected in the in the in the dream where you know he's in this kind of like silly vampire carnival, and that's how he thinks of himself is as this father figure who's bringing this little girl through this whole silly world of yeah. vampires. Don't put your elbow out, like you know, mm-hmm. it's like parental worries <laughs> and like you know. Yeah, he wishes that he could just be the father, and you know, she can she can rest and be a teenager because. You know, the relationship does go deeper than that. And that was a relationship that was explored even more when uh, Wesley Wyndham Price was there. And being Faith Watcher is that, like, he ultimately failed because he couldn't connect to Faith in the way way that he needed to. That he was very by the book, you know, which is the way that Giles started. But you become invested and you remain invested. So that, you know, in his dream sequence, you know, he is singing because that is a big part of his life. That is something that he was. And uh, also, I think Joss Whedon just really likes to hear him sing. (laughs) I mean, let's be real. On a pragmatic level, it's a great way of having exposition, right? It's like a great way in the same way that you had in Hush. Uh, Giles showcasing his drawing abilities with that slideshow and <laughs> in, in, uh, in Restless you have him literally singing the plot of the episode we being uh, chased by this uh, slayer blah 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 and in the same way it reflects uh, Xander on don't who he bleed is. on the couch <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and at the end of it obviously it's him trying to like find something that can't quite untangle with the cables right literally he's trying to find his watch in the cables, but he's also trying to untangle his life and specifically how he fits with the rest of the Scooby gang because his entire point in that season is how do I have a life outside of the library because he lost his job because the high school blew up. Mm-hmm. So he has no job but to live alone in his apartment with maybe Olivia occasionally. And you know, I think, by. yeah, and I think technically he's not, I think, he, wasn't he fired, fired from yeah. the Watcher's Council? Imagine all these themes that we've just talked about. It's like, can you imagine writing dialogue about that? Like, you you can't. It's these are themes that if if you just did, it would it'd be very long winded and very boring, and it'd just be two people standing there talking about like, <laughs> oh, remember I had a life before this, and I'm your father, and it's like like no, just it's a, yeah, it's a key thing. I don't think characters in screen stories can be so self aware that they're talking about their their real deep problems. Like that's never really something that you can have. Giles can't stand there and go, oh man, I'm sure I'm feeling out of place in the world. Like that's going to be the most <laughs> ridiculous thing you've ever heard said by a character. So you do need to find these visual ways to explore that and to communicate that to the audience yeah, and the other characters. And to give ways for them to react within that environment. For sure. And that brings us to the last person in the dream world, which is Buffy. I feel like her dream is more about her confusion about what it means to be a slayer, right? Her identity is in relation to the the primeval slayer, as well as some foreshadowing for the future. So, for example, you have, she's making the bed with 
Tara, I believe, in, in Restless. Uh, that's obviously a callback to the end of the third season when there was this big dream that she had involving Faith where they talked about you know making the bed for a new rival, uh, i.e. Dawn, the sister, coming along really shortly in the first episode of the next season. So there's a lot of those little callbacks. The clock that shows 7.30, that's a callback to the same dream with Faith when she was talking about the big uh, 7.30, which in relation to Buffy means 730 days until she dies, i.e. the season five finale of the show, which was meant as the series finale. Uh, I mean, you have all these little elements, like obviously Joyce living in walls, which could foreshadow her mental issues, her being, you know, walled out and obviously dying in the fifth season. Spoiler alert. So it's all these little touches that are going to pay off dividend down the line, but are still relating to the bigger picture of what the show is about right now. Yeah, and it also foreshadows the relationship between spike and buffy and how you know as she goes further into the dark you know she relates to him even more you know and he always calls everybody out on his stuff and is saying you know like you are more like us than you are like them and so it's battling that notion when she says in the dream to the first slayer i need my friends you know the first slayer says no friends and she's like no you need them to fight this fight and then she literally wrestles with the uh, first slayer and wins so, you know, that's also another thing, like, visually speaking, like, that's something that you would have to show and not tell, because how do you even tell something like that? And, and also this idea that, you know, you had this fight between the, the Slayers, and it's very anticlimactic because she walks away. She's like, oh, I'm bored now. You know, you're being, you're stabbing me to death. I'm denying you this fight. And that's obviously in contrast to, like, any other fight in the history of the show where uh, it came to fruition, and that's because she doesn't care about fighting the first Slayer at the end of the day. She cares about who she is. Like, she's accepted who she is, and that is the family that surrounds her. Beginning of season four, you have her grappling with identity, and then at the end, she is like, this is who I am. Mm, For sure. And speaking of identity thing, like we said just before, when they all finally wake up from their dreams, they've realized these things that they need to admit to themselves and about themselves, right? I mean, the fact that the episode ends on that bed that Buffy made for Dawn, that's the image that ends the season, obviously the episode i think that showcases foreshadowing for the next season which is an element that's prevalent throughout this episode all right nick what are some takeaways number one this might be obvious but show don't tell number two characters are defined by their actions and reactions to something number three there are other ways and definitely more interesting and effective ways to communicate things like character story and theme than just using dialogue and lastly you do not need to overwrite your visuals on the page for them to be effective What's some resources we can give our listeners to take away from this? Well, the big resource I'm going to be linking in the show notes is the complete collection of Buffy scripts on Buffy World. You have pretty much any episode script, including obviously Hush and Restless, to dig your fangs into. And then I would say the entire body of work from Dr. Sharon Ross. She was one of my professors that uh, taught me everything I know. So if you want to be as smart as me, uh, (laughs) uh, no, Uh, but go ahead and go online. uh, Take a look at her work. She has a lot of excellent books and dissertations. She also does a great comparison with uh, the Powerpuff Girls and girl power in media, uh, Buffy, Powerpuff Girls, Wonder Woman, all that good stuff. Their entire college 
college courses on Buffy studies, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah Buffy studies. Yeah. The whole... uh, Columbia College, Chicago, which is where I went to. What? What? Uh, <laughs> we don't have a mascot, so I can't be like, "Yeah, go Bulldogs!" Yeah. It's Maybe like... the mascot is Buffy. <laughs> unofficial. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's, a, it's the Slayers. Mr. There's yeah. the Columbia Slayers. It's Mr. Pointy. I'll, I'll take it. But uh, yeah, Columbia <laughs> College, Chicago. They have entire courses dedicated to that history of television, uh, critical study of television, and uh, there are all those like philosophy of Buffy books and stuff as well, like they have for all the other series too. I'm sure there. Exactly. So there's a lot of great places to start there. Cool. And you can also ask me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that brings us to the end of our episode. Thanks everyone for listening. I hope that uh, you understood all of these nerds talking about Buffy. Nerds? Uh, who's a nerd here? <laughs> they don't need understanding. Sorry, I'm a nerd too, just not exactly that guy. Yeah. Uh, you can get the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 37. And as always, you can uh, leave us awesome reviews at paperteam.co slash iTunes. As always, if you leave us some reviews, uh, that'll help us get new listeners and uh, build our community. And I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. Uh, I'm at underscore NJ Watson. And I'm on Instagram at girl underscore Evan. You can give us any feedback, thoughts, and opinions at ask at paperteam.co. And next week, Alex? Well, as we mentioned earlier today in this episode, we're going to be at WonderCon this week. Yay! Whoop, whoop. We're actually closing out the con. We're literally the last panel of the entire convention. Yeah, you know how like comedy shows, the best person goes on last? Yeah. That's every- not us. But, uh- <laughs> well, that, that, is, that is us. I was going to yeah. say, everything is uh, set up just for the, the payoff. That is the, our last panel, which is going to be about writer versus fandom. So if you're in Anaheim, come over on Sunday, April 2nd at 4 p.m. in room 209, which also means that next week we will not have an episode, but we will have one after that. So if you cannot attend WonderCon, don't worry, because we got you covered. We will be releasing the panel as our first episode back on Monday, April 9. And we'll see you then. Goodbye.